Well, tonight we're going to continue on this theme of wonders in the church, and as it is expressed here in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, so I encourage you and invite you to turn there in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and this evening we're actually going to do a panorama of the whole chapter and basically taking it as one unit this evening. And we'll look at it from, again, this theme of the oneness of the body of Christ. And what you see here is that we affirm again the words that we quoted from in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy, universal, Catholic, apostolic church, and we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. It is only through Jesus Christ and him alone that men and women are forgiven of their sins. And there is one body when the message is received in a person's life. So this doctrine of oneness can be expressed, though, practically. And so what we find in chapter 3 is the practical outworkings of how we actually work out being one in spiritually essence in the Catholic uh, universal church, visible and invisible. And so what Paul gives us here are three ways that, practically speaking, we can work out our oneness together. Three expressions, as you would, of how we can be one in Christ Jesus, practically speaking. And the first one that he gives us, and it's biographical, of course, is that there is one longing to have a reunion, the reunion of God's people. That is, there is this oneness that is expressed in a longing love for being with Christians and being together with Christians. And you see that in verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 to 9, there is a oneness in exchanging news. It's not gossip, but it's a oneness in exchanging news so that the news is summarized in the perseverance of the saints. And we love to hear that, that we are together and we're persevering in the Lord. So there's this exchange that goes on. And then third, there is this desire to pray one for another, to be concerned taking it to the Lord in prayer. So it goes from a desire of love, a desire of news, and a desire of oneness in prayer. Now, as chapter 3 begins, and if you're here this morning, I don't want to repeat it, but there's a bridge. And you can see it if you take time to read verse 17 to 20 of chapter 2. Here's the bridge that Paul has made between the two chapters that are in our Bibles numerically. There he was speaking about the fellowship of the saints that he wanted to be part of. And he introduced that. And now what he does, he repeats himself, but he, he gives different information to it. He, he elaborates more on it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And so the bridge is made. There's this longing for oneness in the fellowship of the saints and being together. And now he gets specific of how he wants to see that oneness done. It would appear from chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, that Paul is in Athens, and there is a debate and a discussion. Is this his first visit to Athens, or is this a second subsequent trip to Athens? 
And I will admit, depending on the day, sometimes I go back and forth. But I read this and think, no, I think it's the first visit. And then sometimes I will think, as I do some more looking at it, no, I think it's the second visit to Athens. Uh, nevertheless, whether it's the first visit to Athens or the second visit to Athens, Paul feels isolated. He feels alone. And so that could be why it, it might be the first visit. Maybe the converts have not come yet into the body of Christ in any numerical number or, or in any sort. And so he feels isolated. He feels all alone. And it's very interesting, and I think it's good for us to see the humanity of the Apostle Paul. He is a Christian who is saved, as all Christians are, by Jesus Christ. He is a Christian who has emotions and feelings, as all Christians do. And we must not deny them. We must accept them. We must recognize them. And so Paul does not deny his emotions. He accepts them. He writes about them. He tells you about them. He is honest. He is not suppressing what his deep feelings and longings are. And so you see that here in background. Also, Paul is very free to say, I can't do this alone. I cannot do what I'm doing as an evangelist here in Athens alone. I feel so alone. I need support and I need help. But Timothy is one who has recently come, perhaps very briefly, and now he says, I'm going to have to send him away again. And so there is this confusion. My own thinking is, this is what's happened. Paul um, probably is on his second trip in Athens, and the brothers from up north in Macedonia have come down, but very briefly, maybe just 24 hours or something, and now he's got to send them back again. And he is willing to deprive himself of the comfort of Christian fellowship so that he can find out what is going on back up north in Macedonia. And so he says these things, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. It's the curious thing is, we, who is the we, and then he talks about being alone. It's a bit of a contradictory statement, and it's hard for us to grasp the, the full impact of the grammar and the way he's speaking it. But we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel to establish and exhort you in the faith. Notice what he calls Timothy. He calls him our brother, and he calls him God's fellow worker, not Paul's fellow worker. God's fellow worker. Paul has tremendous regard and respect for this very young fellow worker of the Lord. Amazing regard for him and high respect for what this young man will potentially do for the kingdom of God. And Paul has this longing. His longing is that he could be back up in Thessalonica and that he could be with the Christians, but he cannot go. Why? Probably because if he goes, he'll be killed. And Paul is trying to preserve his life as long as he possibly can to continue the gospel until he senses the great purposes of God. And we will see that, of course, in the, in the 
chapters that would follow in the book of Acts. So why would he be willing to send Timothy, his right hand, his confidant, his brother, his fellow servant, to fellow worker of the Lord? Because he is needing a report. He wants to learn and see how these Christians are doing, but also he wants them to be strengthened in the faith and encouraged by the, the presence of someone coming back to them. And he wants to keep reminding them, keep confessing the faith and be confirmed in the faith. Faith, You will be facing afflictions and trials and sufferings. The Lord taught you about those things. Just think of some of those key verses in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus was honest. He said, when you come to me, you become a follower of me. You can expect there will be alienation, affliction, trial, and suffering. And Paul said the same things to the Thessalonians. Everything Jesus prepared his disciples for, Paul prepared his disciples in Thessalonica also for. And so Paul is deeply concerned for this branch of the church of Jesus Christ. It's one family. But we want to know what the various branches are doing. And are they being nurtured? And are we receiving good news and are they growing in the faith? And so in terms of application, this is a longing love for the reunion day of the people of God. It's a, it's a longing for fellowship. We said it this morning, and it's like the, the shotgun shoots itself off again. It's the same reminder. Christians need one another. Christians long for one another. Christians desire to be acquainted and to grow together in the faith and to exchange that faith with one another. The marks of growing Christians are fellowshipping people who long for the company of one another. Now, that's the first five verses, this longing and this love exchange. And then the second part of the chapter is at verse 6 to about verse 9, where Paul wants direct news. He is sort of like a news junkie at this point. And as a news junkie, he wants specifics. He doesn't want a vague report. Ah, they're all fine up there. They're doing okay. No, he wants particulars. He wants perhaps even names. He wants to know. Has anyone fallen away from the faith? Are they persevering in the faith? And what is going on? And so now as we come to verse 6 through to verse 9, we see it. But now that Timothy has come to us. So Timothy is there, and he can bring news to us. Well, probably Paul has left Athens by the time he gets the news. It does take time for news to travel in those days. There's no search engines that you can learn everything in a few minutes or something like that. It, you know, just the occasion with Rushdie at uh, Chautauqua Institute. I went and checked it about 10 minutes after I heard the news report. And sure enough, it was on Wikipedia under Chautauqua. They had already said, 
the most famous incident that ever happened there was the attempted murder of Rushdie. And I was thinking, amazing, 10 minutes on Wikipedia on the article on the Chautauqua Institute in New York State. That's all it took. It didn't work that way in Paul's day. So Timothy goes up north, he collects his information, he gets his report, and he is going to bring it back to Paul. But Paul's already left Athens. <laughs> You've got to remember, it's hard to keep up with Paul sometimes. And Paul is probably now down in the southern peninsula of Greece, and he's down in, um, in Corinth. And you can go back and read it there in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Paul's the traveler, and he's done his time in 18 months in Corinth, and um, he will go down now probably for a second visit, rather, to Corinth. So Timothy now will bring the news probably there or share it in some way. Timothy's report is wonderful. It's mainly good news. Now, there'll be some bad news as the chapters go along, but we start with the good news. And that's always a good reminder for all of us. Find the good news, let's begin with it, and see what is encouraging. And so Paul receives the good news, and it's a collection of four things that are good news. The first item of news is they're still in the holding the faith. The second news is they're still loving one another. The third news is that they're longing for deeper Christian fellowship also with me. And fourthly, they are persevering. And so you see these things. They're intertwined all together. It makes us think of a proverb. And since we were recently looking at Proverbs, you remember Proverbs chapter 25. 25 is the perfect proverb for this testimony of Timothy, 25.25, like cold water to a thirsty soul. A good thing for today. It was 32 in our car when we came out. So is good news from a far country. It's almost like that proverb was tailor-made for the news report of Timothy to Paul. On a hot day, what refreshes you? Cold water. It's good to have cold water on a hot day. Unless you're from middle Africa, you don't drink cold water, you ask for hot water. So there are exceptions even to this proverb in the world. So is good news from a far country. There is Paul, probably down in Corinth, receiving the news new, now from the far country of the Macedonians. And it is refreshing his soul. It's blessing him. It's interesting, as this news is exchanged, Paul's spirit is lifted. Paul is ministered to. There is the human believer, the great apostle, the greatest evangelist of history, the greatest mission worker, church planter of all time. Yet his soul was being ministered to by fellow Christians, by fellow believers, and by this good report of Timothy that has now come to him of faith, love, and deeper fellowship, longing, and perseverance. And he is encouraged. Paul is a realist as was the Lord Jesus. 
And I want to remind you, let me read a few verses from the parable of the sower. And then think of this in light of what Paul is hearing in this report back from Timothy. In Matthew chapter 13, 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has the no root in himself, but endures for a while tribulation, persecution, suffering and affliction arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. What is Paul saying? I've received this report, and the essence of the report is this. Your faith was not just a temporary, ecstatic, emotional faith. Your faith was not just a temporary or a temporal faith that sprang up quickly, just because it was novel and new, the things that Paul brought to town? No. Your faith had roots. And it went deep. And you truly were saved. You were truly converted. You were not just nominally, superficially brought into the kingdom. You were genuinely saved. And Timothy has brought this report to me that you are truly saved and persevering in the faith. The goal of evangelism, of course, is not just to say, we got 33 more people saved today. The goal of evangelism is ultimately not only seeing people saved, but seeing them rooted, founded, growing, maturing, nurtured, bearing fruit in persevering grace. There are various kinds of faith. There is a genuine saving faith, but then there is often a temporary faith. People sometimes get confused, and they sometimes wonder and say, well, can someone who's saved really lose their salvation? And what Paul would say, in all of Scripture would say, is a question. Were they ever saved? They may have appeared saved, 
temporarily. They may have given certain hints of it. But we may not discern all of the heart. The heart is known to the Lord. So the mystery of what we see externally, we are fallible. But the reality of this true saving faith is known to God. So the question, can someone lose their salvation, can be answered by a question. Did they ever have saving faith? And if you relate this to what Timothy has come back, Timothy comes back and says, these brothers and sisters are persevering. The thorns, the cares, the afflictions, the trials, the satanic influences, all those things have not put them off, but they are standing fast amidst the storms of this world. I haven't asked him, but maybe you've read um, Paul Esterbrooks had a little book, or it's actually grown, I think it's now a big book, and a full curriculum. And I've often wondered if it was based upon this verse, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And I'm not sure if that's the verse where he got his title for his book and his curriculum or not, but it's exactly what Paul sees. So these Christians have continued in the milk, and they are standing, and they are growing in their faith and rootedness. True conversion has been seen here, not just a temporary conversion. And they, this message blesses Paul. It encourages him because he is an evangelist. And it reminds him that he will keep going on in Europe. His work in Europe is not finished. There is much yet to be done. And God has more people for him to reach with the gospel. And so Paul gives you this testimony of his own heart. For he says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Just hear the Apostle Paul. He is giving you his testimony and says, I'm a happy man tonight. I'm a happy man today because Timothy's word has impacted me with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. These people are progressing on. So what you see again is this family relationship, this unity of the church, north and south here, intertribal, but it is one people in Christ, longing for reunion, one people persevering in the Lord, and the marks of God's family is they will continue to persevere. Paul then ends the final section, and I think it really starts at verse 10 more, and it's interconnected from verse 10 down to verse 13, and it's this desire of praying for each other. We show our unity and our oneness as the church body of Jesus Christ, invisibly and visibly, by being one people praying for one another and informed in prayer. And so verses 10 to 13 are about that. And so Paul begins again with another word of testimony, and we pray earnestly night and day 
that I will see you again. And just take note of that, Paul's emotional statement here. It's not just a flippant prayer. It's not just a prayer that he uttered once and he forgot it. He repeated it over and over again. Now that should give us encouragement. Our prayers sometimes are not answered immediately. And Paul's prayer was not answered immediately and perhaps not the way that he ever thought it would be answered either. It's a little uncertain for us to know exactly. But that should remind us. Prayer sometimes isn't answered the way we wanted to. But prayer can continue on and we persevere in prayer. And so Paul prayed earnestly, perseveringly, night and day, repeating the prayer request. I want to see my fellow brothers and sisters. I want to be reunited with them. I want to be in their presence. And Paul was praying, would you open the door, God? I leave it to you, God. You can do all things. Will you open the door that somehow this visa would be granted? Somehow these persecutors would not harm me, not attack me. That somehow, Lord, all the roadblocks to northern Macedonia and to Thessalonica and perhaps to Berea would be just removed and taken away. But ultimately, Paul submitted his prayer to the will of the Father. If it is your will, Lord, and until I can go, I submit to you, and I will keep waiting, and I will keep praying, but I will keep longing to know how they are doing. You know, just even in that little testimony, we learn a great deal about prayer. Prayer is often repeated. Prayer faces roadblocks but submits that prayer to the will of God in submission. And prayer also sometimes has to wait a long time for the answer to appear as God wills it. And so we see that in 10 and 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you as God wills I submit to his will. Maybe tonight there is something that you have been praying for. And you've been leaving it with the Lord night and day. And you have to keep on saying to yourself, Thy will be done. And when you say, Thy will be done, that is not a cop-out statement in prayer. It is acknowledgement of our relationship as the creature to our heavenly Father, our creator and maker. It is a spirit of submission. And it is continuing to ask as the Lord wills. What may happen to you, you may find as you continue to pray over the course of weeks, months, years, that you will may even modify your prayer you will see things differently. And your prayer may even be redirected or refashioned as you commune with your Father. So Paul prayed for the reunion, submissively, waitingly. 
Paul likewise prayed specifically now. And he's very specifically, his prayer requests are quite simple. I just pray that, he says, they'll continue to increase in love for each other and for all. Now you can fill in the blanks. To pray for each other is simple. That's all the Christians, the brothers and sisters by name in Thessalonica. But to pray for the all. Ah, who was the all? Those who persecute the Christians. Those who are the enemies of the gospel. Those who are against the Lord and his people. Pray for Christians. Pray for the enemies of the Christians. Pray for the governors of the land, the emperor. Continue to pray and show love and increase in love for all people and love for your enemies. May it overflow, as Paul is saying it here, an overflowing love that flows out amongst you to the pagans. I think as we, we are facing a crisis now in the Western world in terms of what we used to call apologetics, and I think that apologetics is going to be very much what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. God's people are going to have to demonstrate and show to a watching world their love one for another. But they will also be judged, and we shall also be judged, for our love to our enemies and our love to all the world. And so, even as they loved one another, the world looked on. You see that spirit in the book of Acts. So he's praying for them that they will continue in love, not division, not fighting, but in genuine love, servant, sacrificial concern for each other. Then he also adds, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Now, it's almost like Paul is getting into a little benediction here or thinking of end times and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the holiness of the Lord. But I think it's not just end times. I think it's also thinking of this. The best way to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is to prepare now in a spirit of holy living and being right with God in separation from the world, from the flesh, from the evil one and a commitment to living for the Lord, growing in holiness. So he is sort of going between two tenses here. He's going between the immediate, may I see and pray for you that you will continue to wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, grow in blamelessness, purity, holiness for the Lord, which will prepare you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Have you noticed something very curious about the book of Thessalonians? Look at chapter 1, very last verse of chapter 1. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's Paul's great reference, of course, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and being ready for Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. Read the last verse, the last words 
of the very last chapter and the last paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you see the same spirit. You look then at the end of chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or our joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It's you that we're waiting to see at Christ's coming. And that's going to be the joy and the glory as we present you to the King of Kings. Now you come to the end of chapter 3. The same spirit at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul is, is reflecting on this over and over again. Look at the end of chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Look over at the end of chapter 5 before he gets into his final little um, statements and diatribe. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. There it is again. Consecrate you to holiness, preparing for the holy coming of heaven. You're completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. It's the same idea at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he makes his fine little statements. What you see is Paul is laying this down as a repeated statement all the way through 1 Thessalonians. But it goes between the tenses. The now, the duty of the Christian is separation, consecration, the pursuit of holiness. If now, then it is in preparation for the day of his coming. For the day of his coming will be marked by separation, consecration, holiness, the conflict of the world, the flesh, and the devil shall be put to rest. And the glory of the heavenly kingdom in holiness and righteousness will be seen and manifested in its all its glory with all the saints. And of course, what is the word for saint? Consecrated one, holy one, separated one. The saints are the holy ones of the Lord. So Paul's prayer is for the people that are in another location. Paul's prayer is that he could get back to them willingly, submissively. Paul's prayer for them is that God's people elsewhere will continue in love, to love to one another and love for all. Paul's prayer for the now and for the coming of the Lord in preparation is for a growth in sanctification and holy living and consecration. And that marks out all the saints when they will be gathered together as the invisible, one, united body of Jesus Christ. But we go between the invisible and the visible now. And in the visible now, the struggle remains. It is ambiguous, as Piper said. It is in part, but we long for the whole. And so, the visible unity of the church 
cause us to think about the invisible unity of the church and to reach out and to say, here is my longing for the reunion of God's people. Here is my desire to know and to hear of the perseverance of his people. And here is our prayer as one to pray for the fellow saints and the people of the Lord and the ambassadors of the Lord to commit them to prayer and longingly do so. Amen. Let us pray.